Kara. I was just getting ready to count down to that part. I guess we don't need a countdown. We don't need a countdown. We're pros. We're trying. We're trying. How are you? Other than rushed and not in your garden. I, I'm fine. I'm I'm actually doing really good. I'm just on a I'm on a mental holiday right now. You want to hear my exciting news? Yeah. I got the first dose of my COVID-19 vaccine Woo! yesterday. It totally felt like a creepy back alley operation that totally shouldn't have worked because I am not within the current age bracket, nor do I have any qualifying health issues. But one Walmart in town is prioritizing professors for any extra doses of the vaccine. And so myself, my brother and sister-in-law drove like bats out of hell to get to Walmart last night before the pharmacy shut down and we all got our first doses. And here's why we're friends, Kara. We've learned mm -hmm. how to work the systems. <laughs> right? I mean, it's true. It's true. And like we're passing the information on, but it's also upsetting, like the lack of consistency with all of this rolling out. Like it's really, it's well, crazy. I will give my mother all due credit for training me up because I grew up with her as first a clerical and then an administrator for the Social Security Administration. And so the rule of thumb when it comes to dealing with bureaucracy is don't wait for them to- Circumvent, circumvent, circumvent. <laughs> yeah, and that's what, if I want to get academic, I would also say it's very Gramscian. You ever read Gramsci? I have not. So um, this is in the cultural anthropology theory stuff. And, and basically he was writing in prison during World War II, I believe, under the fascists. And, pleasant, and pleasant situation. Describing middling bureaucracy and how it basically creates, maintains stasis to keep itself employed. So a lot mm -hmm. of paper shuffling and buck passing, like narrow parameters of a job description. Nope, that's not in my job description. So if you fill out form 72B. Exactly. Yeah, it's very <laughs> much it's very much like that stereotype. And I want to brag a little too, because of what we're talking about is related to our academics thing, you know, like sometimes you uh, have to know how to hack the system because there's nothing in place for certain things. Mm -hmm. COVID pandemic vaccinations are brand new. So of course, everything's not going to run smoothly. Yeah. But I want to brag on getting all my kids into college, their college relatively paid for, and in the dorms with their roommates that they want to, and I won't go into details, but to say that it's been 18 years of me struggling, striping, and getting a job and all that to get my kids to the starting line for their life. That is a massive accomplishment for both you and Loretta, but also them. I mean, they yeah. put the work in, they put the effort in, they applied to the scholarships and all the colleges, and they put the footwork in yeah. visiting colleges as I saw your travels. We laid the foundation and they- um, They built. They built. And I'll give you the details later because it's interesting, but it is not uh, anything that will be of interest to Sausage Science listeners. That's okay. What will be- <laughs> interest to sausage of science listeners kara are we talking to a we are talking to an awesome or a scientist today well definitely a scientist i i mean the the identification as sausage or not uh any meat product is still left to be unknown uh although i guess we are all made of meat so can, can you make works. sausages out of helmets oh i'm sure you can 
Okay. I'm not sure I would recommend it. It would also yeah, probably, probably take a lot of helmets to make it satisfying. They're really tiny, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so <laughs> today... I think her Twitter handle is Helmet Lady. That's it is. Asked. We haven't even said her name yet, but her name is Dr. Tara Sapan Robbins, and she is an assistant professor of anthropology at the University of Colorado in Colorado Springs. Um, she is interested in using novel and integrative methods to test the hygiene hypothesis and disappearing microbiota hypothesis, which is not one I've heard of before until, I don't know, a day or two ago, uh, which posit that decreased exposure in parasites and bacterial diversity respectively have resulted in the increase in allergic and autoimmune disorders that we have seen in high income regions of the world. Uh, and her research explores how social and economic change, environmental marginalization, and inequality alter parasite exposure and bacterial diversity and how this change attributes to immune dysregulation. And she's worked among the Schwar of Amazonian Ecuador, which is part of the Schwar Health and Life History Project, which we've had a couple of Schwar folks on already, as well as a recently developed project in the Southeastern US, which is called the Rural Embodiment and Childhood Health Project. That was all the words. We had a Schwar team member, not a Schwar, someone among the schwar but Teresa Gilbert and we've had Sam Erlacher as well on and yeah, yeah, uh, Michael was, Gervin we've had like wait we had every all all of the people all except for Tara probably yes on, on <laughs> and what I was going to say is you had me at microbiota as a firing regenerative gardener I'm all about the microbiome and the healthy uh, biology of soil so let's bring her finally on. bring her on hello hello Thank you so much for your patience. We appreciate you waiting on us. It's poster season, so I had ample time now to sit there and work on some uh, tedious formatting. Yep, it was great. <laughs> <laughs> I really appreciated that extra time. Well, that's good. Are you somebody when you do tedious poster formatting, you put like junk Netflix TV on in the background is just something <laughs> to get you through the tedium? I used to, but I have a three-year-old now, so she has... Uh, control of the television during well that, that would be junk tv in many ways i guess for an adult yep <laughs> three-year-old so i have a year and a half old nephew and a six-year-old niece actually almost a two-year-old nephew what is her show of choice oh paw patrol yes. and shimmer and shine and Ooh, that's a lot of one. those it's got some weird colonial undertones that i'm not even i have not seen that one either <laughs> Uh, but Paw Patrol, Clifford, and Octonauts are, are the big ones among my niece and nephew. Yeah, she's watched those other two as well. She's, she <laughs> runs the gamut. There's a pandemic. She watches more TV than I think I would have preferred, but it's that's okay. It's getting through it, and it is yep. finding the methods to do so. There's No one's going to judge that. <laughs> no yep. one should. But anyway... <laughs> Thank you so much for being on the show and taking the time to talk to us today, especially with having to take care of a three-year-old and do all of your other work. I mean, it's a lot, so we appreciate it. Thank you for having me today. So it, it sounds like having a three-year-old and, and your work fit hand in glove, right? With the, the <laughs> child carrying around uh, our paws, right? Paw Patrol, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So before we dive into the research, we want to know about the researcher. So we were wondering if you could tell us about you and how you became interested in anthropology. So yeah, growing up, I lived right in between Chicago and Milwaukee. So I was really lucky to have museums in both 
areas. So my parents took me to the Field Museum and the Milwaukee Museum a ton when I was starting from when I was really little. So I knew from a really early age that I wanted to be an anthropologist. And at that point specifically, it was archaeology because I had no idea that biological anthropology existed. And I went to Catholic school, so we had some lackluster science classes as well. So I didn't get a lot of really good biological background at all. But Catholic school did reinforce my interest in archaeology at the time. So by the time it was time to go to college, that stuck with me. Um, and I went to Marquette University. I majored in anthropology. I learned about bioarchaeology because at the time, Norman Sullivan had the uh, had access to the Milwaukee County Almshouse Cemetery at the time. And so I got to work with that with him, um, put together a poster for AAPA my senior year, went to the AAPAs and realized that biological anthropology was huge and I loved it. So got to know everything that that covered. And I ended up in graduate school with uh, Dr. Josh Snodgrass, thinking that I was going to do something, some mix of energetics and musculoskeletal stress marker research, because I knew most about bioarchaeology, but then learned that I could study it in living people. But then my first summer, I went to Ecuador with the Schwar Health and Life History Project to help some of the more senior graduate students with their research. And while I was there, I was just fascinated to learn about neglected tropical diseases. And especially, I think the most notable one that piqued my interest is that the older men in the shore population had signs of river blindness or onchocerciasis with the um, cataracts in their eyes from the larva working into your eye and kind of eating away at the eye, which is something that terrified me at the time. That's but... a new one that we have not heard about before. So thank yes. you. Also now, that sounds terrifying now still. Yeah, well, and so I started reading about it while I was there, which was a bad decision, but that you'll get like pockets of worm in your skin before while they're laying eggs and they're migrating through your tissues. They're not, that is actually becoming eradicated and there's, it's not in Ecuador anymore, sorry. Not in Ecuador anymore, which is why my email went off. I will close out of that. Yeah, not in Ecuador anymore, at least that we know of. So only the older men had the uh, cataracts in their eyes. But I became fascinated with parasites after that. I think it was a little bit out of morbid fear that was happening. <laughs> but uh, I was about to say, I, was it like confronting your fear and as a way to get over it? I think so. So I don't know if either of you have uh, read the Where There Is No Doctor book. Okay, so we take that to the field with us because it, it it's kind of a really old book. So there's some weird stuff in it. But I that was where I first started reading about it. And then I started reading about all the different parasites and I was, I, I just was hooked on the subject. Um, yeah, so I, I think that got me. And then coming home, I read more and more about it. And what cemented my love for infection, immune function um, relationships was just learning that throughout human history, evolutionary history, the norm is having pathogens and parasites and that we are completely abnormal now. So I think if you go fishing, you reel in a fish, you cut it open, there's 
worms all over it. And that's not surprising. You're more surprised really to find wormless fish. <laughs> I mean, I guess not entirely, but you know what I mean? It's the norm is to have parasites and pathogens and not having these things is actually weird. So I am just fascinated by that. So there are several things, but one, I can't <laughs> let it go because I need to know. So the the eye parasite that has been eradicated, does that come from water treatment? How has it actually been eradicated from Ecuador? What's that process been? I So it's actually getting eradicated in a number of places. And I, I can't, I don't actually know how they mm. fully worked that out, but somebody got a huge prize for it a while back. So it's, I mean, it was a fairly common neglected tropical disease until the last couple decades. I, I also say. feel like it is the inspiration, and Chris, you may or may not know this reference, uh, in The Expanse, there's a whole thing, they're on an alien planet, and there's a, you know, a new parasite, and it gets into people's eyes and causes them to go blind. And so now I know that is very much rooted in reality, and it wasn't yeah. just something they spawned out of nowhere. It's um, river blindness. River blindness. They did not call it that. I don't even it's, know if they got a name. <laughs> it's vector. It's vector borne. So it probably the treatment probably has to do with treating the vectors. Mm. Very cool. And then the other thing, like you said this almost right at the beginning, but I think it's an important point, is that you went to the AAPAs as an undergrad, mm -hmm. which I mean, when I was an undergrad, I did not know that was really a thing someone could do. It seemed like grad students and faculty only. Um, and I think it's really important. I think the, the participation from undergrads is increasing, uh, but I think making, you know, putting it out there that this happens and people do it and we should encourage undergrads to do it is really, really important. So thank you for sharing that. Yes, um, yeah, we're an undergrad only institution at UCCS, at least our department, not everybody. Mm -hmm. Other departments have grad students, but that's one thing as I'm growing my research program that I'm trying to bring my undergrads in more and more. Of course, the pandemic has made it hard to actually bring them. Right? But. <laughs> yeah, and it's tough too. And it's one of those things that we want to incorporate them. But like the timeline with grad students is, or undergrads is so much shorter to get them trained up and then actually doing things on their own. But so, you know, all the power to you. So you have a new really awesome paper out in PNAS called Pathogen Discussed Sensitivity Protects Against Infection in a High Pathogen Environment, in which you test the hypothesis that those with greater pathogen disgust sensitivity will be exposed to fewer pathogens and therefore have fewer infections. So tell us how you went about testing this hypothesis and why this hypothesis is important to test of how this kind of fits in with human biology. Okay, yeah, so I'll start out just talking about why it's important and then get into the methods of it. But so like health research, a lot of research on evolution and emotions tends to happen in academic settings, usually among undergrads, college students, and usually within more quote unquote wealthy regions within wealthy nations and or via internet surveys. And all of that limits the scope of what people are able to say about the evolved nature of emotions. And disgust was no different. Disgust is hypothesized to have evolved to protect us from pathogen infection. And many hypo hypothesize that it should be highest in high pathogen environments in order to best protect people. But we can't really say that's true if we don't test it in high pathogen environments. Um, so that's why this was important. We tested this in a high disease environment. And the study was conducted with the Shore Health and Life History Project, 
we worked with the Shuar of Ecuador. And it's a really good population to test this in because they are experiencing very rapid regionally variable integration into market economies, meaning that we get to test this in a range of lifestyles and environments. So some communities we worked with are in the Kraskutuku region. It takes them about eight hours by bus, three to seven hours by canoe to get to the main regional market center. So they tend to not engage in the market economy quite as much. Their uh, lifestyles seem to situate more around foraging and horticulture as well as hunting and fishing. You see there then houses that are thatched roof, thatched wall, dirt floor, no piped water. And then in the Upano Valley, which is a region that we also study that's closer to the market center, it takes them about 90 minutes to get there by truck. These communities are more reliant on the market economy and they're engaged more in wage labor. They participate in the lumber industry, they bring goods to the market and so on. So they tend to have more engagement with the market economy. And there you'll see more kind of government subsidized cinder block homes, tin roofs, cement floors, piped water, and less reliance on hunting, fishing, and horticulture and foraging, but still some of that. So by no means fully engaged in market economies. But we found that in both regions, they have relatively high pathogen loads. And because of that and that variation, they're a really good population to study this in. So we tested the hypothesis. Does disgust vary based on disease environment and also does it protect from infection? So we collected dry blood spot measures of inflammatory immune responses to bacterial and viral infections. So we got CRP or C-reactive protein and interleukin-6. And then we also got immunoglobulin E, which is related to macroparasitic infection. And then we collected stool samples to get at soil transmitted helminth presence. Those are intestinal parasitic worm and style of life interviews to get at uh, family level engagement in market economy. And then finally, we collected discussed interviews to see how disgusting participants found certain items. So that is the general setup of the project and how we tested it. So it sounds like you guys actually did a field test of uh, Randy Thornhill and Corey Fincher's parasite-driven wedge hypothesis. Is that roughly what we're going? Yeah, looking at... Uh, is that that one's more about uh, like environmental calibration and protective effects of disgust? Yeah, higher rates of pathogenicity. They're going to be more, what do they call it, assorted sociality and limited dispersal. So somewhat, maybe not xenophobic, but not interacting with others, not traveling very far if their pathogen rates, local pathogen rates are high and vice versa if they're lower. I mean, they use, I think the global infectious disease online database or whatever it's called, but you're, you're actually looking at the pathogen loads in the field. How do we map those on then to their behavior? What did, what did you find? Yeah, we found that disgust sensitivity actually reduces exposure to infection. So we weren't really looking at like necessarily at individuals and where they traveled and xenophobia responses. We were looking specifically at pathogen disgust sensitivity. So there's a number of questionnaires that get at different level types of disgust. And so some studies have looked at like fear of others, xenophobia stuff. Others have looked at sexual disgust or moral disgust. We didn't really look at those in this case a lot due to the fact that we're more interested in the pathogen relationship, but also due to the fact that it would be a little bit culturally inappropriate to address some of those subjects with the Schwarf. 
So sticking to pathogen stuff was good. So, <laughs> and we had to do a lot of adapting from questionnaires that have existed in other populations. So most of those questionnaires are designed in settings that are to be used on internet to get at sort of more kind of, I would say, Northern European culture, United States culture. They ask things like, how do you feel about using a public toilet seat? Or how do you feel about sleeping in a nice hotel room where somebody has died or participating in science class activities? And these are things that just don't come up. So yeah, we, we have that as a question. Maybe you could speak to that a little bit, like obviously oh, yeah. the hotel room and somebody who dies, so on and so forth. Although that's a question I have never pondered about the hotel room <laughs> and death. And so then how do you tailor these kinds of scales, like the discussed sensitivity test in particular, like how do you go about figuring out exactly which items to include and which new ones, novel ones that would never be on any other tests. What is that process like? Yeah. So luckily, <laughs> Larry Sugiyama, Dr. Larry Sugiyama has been working with the Schwar specifically since 2005, but in Amaz Amazonia, uh, South America for decades. I don't want to make him sound older than he is, but he's been working there for a while. And uh, <laughs> so he's had a lot of conversations. And we got some of our ideas of what to include from that. And then we also did free listing my first year down working on this to understand what people found disgusting as well. And so we were able to use that to turn it into a more relevant five point Likert scale where we could ask, is something disgusting or not disgusting? I guess not disgusting or very disgusting. One of the interesting ones, for instance, is drinking chicha made by specific people. So chicha is a fermented drink that's made when usually women, mostly, I think only women, chew yuca and spit it into a container and then ferment it. And in general, the shuar aren't disgusted by drinking chicha because it's usually safer than drinking the water in some contexts because it's fermented. So asking them how they feel about drinking chicha from women who have no teeth or bad teeth or drinking chicha from somebody who's sick like that you know is sick, because that is a way of pathogens being passed that is interesting or at least worth considering. So that was one of the things that got on there. Stepping in feces comes up sometimes, and that was one we included as well. Seeing somebody vomit. So we tried to incorporate those kinds of things that are associated with contagion. We also tried to incorporate things that were associated with foodborne pathogens, like eating raw or spoiled meat or touching an animal, a dead animal with your bare hands, usually a hunted dead animal. And then and things that were vector borne. So having a dog lick your face or fighting a worm in your food or a cockroach on your floor, those kinds of questions made it in there as well. So I, I love this. And, and one of the reasons that we ask these methods questions, one in, is in general, because we want uh, younger researchers, students to, to sort of hear, how, hear the process. But we also, Kara and I, and then to a, a greater extent, I think a lot of our colleagues sort of struggle with disciplinary issues, I'll, I'll just say. Um, I was trained partly in evolutionary psychology, so I'm familiar with some of the theories that you're testing as having come from evolutionary psychology. And there can be some disagreements among disciplines and pillaring whole disciplines. But we've interviewed Aaron Broadwell, we've interviewed Teresa Gildner, we've interviewed, you know, several, uh, Sam Urlacher, and, and what I really like about what everyone on your team is doing. To interject Aaron Blackwell. <laughs> you I said think? Broadwell. 
Aaron Broadwell was. Uh, you remember Aaron? Oh no, he wasn't there. He's a linguist <laughs> at Albany in grad school. I always flip flop their names. Sorry, yeah, both definitely wasn't there when I was there. <laughs> both of you, Aaron Blackwell. So uh, what I really love is you guys are integrating multiple disciplines and you're really working constructively with colleagues and doing great science, in, in my opinion. I'm actually working on a chapter right now for uh, Oxford Handbook of Evolution and Emotions that talking specifically about that, how we need to and how we can incorporate more human biology of psych into studying disgust, particularly in that case, because that is it's interesting because we tend to often have fields that take very different approaches. So bringing those together is how we can answer these questions in a more, I guess, holistic way, although that's a weird word to use, but <laughs> I love it. And we we also really are, are interested in your one, your interest in helmets uh, in parasites, because as grisly as it is and gross as it is for some people, it is not to us. We think it's super cool. So, okay, Kara is a little bit put off. By... The eye thing is kind of disturbing. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Well, it's, it's not disturbing, but it, I mean, there are whole television shows of like, let's just see what weird infections people could get, like medical mysteries. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally fine with that when it's me watching it on a screen. Well, yeah. <laughs> I shouldn't have lied with river blindness, huh? No, 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 no. Like... <laughs> We have talked about snot and feces, like nothing is like off the table for this podcast. So I think leading with River Brineless was, was fantastic, awesome. but it doesn't mean I want to encounter it firsthand. Well, yeah, I mean, Just say it. I, I, don't, I, don't, <laughs> I don't think probably participant observation was not her number one mode of, of understanding River Blindness. <laughs> Let's hope not. Um, so we also want to highlight uh, another paper that you recently published this one you're the sole author and it's we're gonna we're gonna toggle between the two of them but it's in american journal of human biology it's measuring attack on self the need for field friendly methods development and research on autoimmunity in human biology and i have personal and professional interests in studying autoimmunity and never figured out how so how have you innovated to study autoimmunity in the field yeah so this is a difficult task because, and, and that's why it's important. So a lot of the research on autoimmunity almost has to be done in clinical settings. And that means that it ends up being done in more affluent populations. And there's a whole swath of people who get completely neglected. So we know absolutely nothing about autoimmunity outside of really clinical settings. And it's in part out of necessity because autoimmunity is difficult to diagnose. It takes years sometimes, even in a clinical setting to diagnose it. It's very expensive. The diseases tend to overlap with one another and it's just difficult to do. So I start thinking about how we can get at this in a, a lot, a number of different field settings. And it's important to do because you probably know a lot of our hypotheses revolve around this idea that we can hypothesize that autoimmune diseases occur in ultra hygienic, wealthy environments and do not occur outside of those environments. That's a hypothesis that a lot of our theories end up based around, like the hygiene hypothesis and a number of kind of sex-driven hormone-related hypotheses as well sort of sit on that. But if we don't actually test it outside of these clinical settings, we can't really say for 100% that that's true. There's a number of reasons to believe that, but there's also reasons that, for instance, natural fertility 
kind of subsistence-based, those kinds of populations should vary substantially in their immune function beyond hygiene and all that that go into it. And so we need to actually test it in these settings. So I did kind of, for that paper, kind of a lit review to see what has been done within human biology and really not a ton. There've been a couple papers on celiac disease. Uh, I've looked at thyroid peroxidase uh, antibodies, so thyroid autoimmunity in uh, the Yakut of Siberia. I had a paper on that. And there've been a few kind of handful of other studies on autoimmunity within human biology. So again, it's super unfortunate, but probably a necessity due to the clinical setting. So I reviewed then some of the methods that we could start integrating. So what kind of biomarkers exist in dried blood spots, for instance, uh, and those tend to be more immune system based and not necessarily the autoantibodies. So we could look, for instance, at relationships between inflammatory biomarkers and look at sort of downstream effects just to see in these populations if we're seeing immune dysregulation at all, because that could be a predecessor to autoimmune disorders. And then I talked about some of the possible autoantibodies that are found in saliva and in urine and in kind of stool samples that we could also get at to possibly start testing it. And again, it might be a shot in the dark to look in populations for signs of lupus or Crohn's disease or anything that we can find, but it still might be worth doing if we're, if we're collecting the data already anyway. Isn't that what they always say? I mean, you're there, you're collecting, you might as well collect everything while you're at it. And now I can't remember, uh, but this paper was part of the AJHB special issue on minimally invasive methods. And so you just got, you, you listed off a number of them, urine samples, saliva samples, fecal samples. Do blood spots count as minimally invasive? They, because it does involve a poke. So I'm always curious. Yes and no. So they're more minimally invasive than a venous blood draw. Mm. And uh, so, yeah, more minimally invasive than that, but less minimally invasive than sting and <laughs> peeing and pooping. Although you have a lot of people who would probably rather do a finger prick blood draw than give you a Collect cup of their own feces. So, I mean, <laughs> was that one of the questions on your disgust sensitivity questionnaire? Like, are you okay with providing a fecal sample in a cup for me? <laughs> no, but it should have been. I actually, so every time I ask people to give me stool samples, I'm always a little bit surprised when they do. So, <laughs> so in Ecuador, they tend, I think they're really interested in learning if they have helmets. So they are a little bit more willing, I would say, in uh, the South where I started in, we started in rural Mississippi in 2019, looking at some research there uh, on immune function and helminths and other pathogens. So that one's specifically focused on kids and the parents are a little bit more put off. They're like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> but then, and so they are a little bit more put off. And then I worked with some adults in Colorado Springs older adults, so 50 plus, and they were just perfectly fine with like, here, have, have a cup of stool. So I <laughs> middle ground of folks who are yeah. like, no, <laughs> interesting. I wonder yeah. if it's like the trauma of having to have like clean diapers. Yeah. Maybe. Or it like, or so like there's this period of like, I've had enough feces. I and then know, by the time uh, you reach a later age. I wonder so if there are rates on the disgust response scale when someone says, here's a cup of stool. <laughs> no, no, I don't. Uh, 
Yes, here it is. <laughs> I think if somebody randomly offered it, see that is part of the discussed paper is the environmental calibration piece. So it depends on the environment I'm in. If I'm asking for stool samples and someone brings them to me, then I am for my subsistence unable to say no and I will take it. But if I am not, if I, if I am just walking down the street and somebody brings it to me, I will probably be a little put off by it, yes. <laughs> this is what I always say about cooking bugs. If I'm cooking them on purpose, it's one thing, but if I find them in something I cooked, it is so revolting. Uh, this so. I, yes. I collect urine samples for W labeled water and in Finland, like you often provide people with like Dixie cups, so like paper cups to, to pee in and then do the pipetting from the cup into the tubes. And when I got to Finland where I was, the only option were these Moomin paper cups, which is like super famous cartoon character in Scandinavia and in large chunks of Europe. And it was actually really funny how the people would look at the cup and kind of feel bad that they had to pee in it because of Moomin on there. And so it became this like, interesting disgust but for a reason i totally had not anticipated <laughs> but that also made me think of it because i just recently read your uh thyroid paper with the yakub because i was looking at it for my own work too but anyway i've gotten off track <laughs> moomin and urine samples and all that anyway yeah, it'd be so. cool to do a study on researchers in the field and how we feel about the biomarkers we collect there and not and all that that'd be really fun i would also love to do an energetics piece on researchers in the field like what is the metabolic cost of fieldwork for archaeologists versus like human biologists versus cultural? It would be so cool. But that's that. I feel like that might be a tough sell to any granting mechanisms. It'd be one, Chris I bet, like, though. I bet you could get researchers to do it for free. <laughs> yeah, but W labeled water is not yeah, cheap. That's, that's so true. It's, it's not the people I worry about, it's, it's the methods that cost that's a lot. True. Yeah. I feel like you would have all sorts of researchers giving you a cup of stool. It would be the biggest participant pool ever of the most enthusiastic participants you could imagine. It would be great. And the researchers researching them would get to travel all over the world <laughs> to meet these folks in the field. It's like yeah. an ideal I'm in. project. Yeah, new project. <laughs> Post-COVID world. Anyway, instead of talking about this random dream project of mine, um, what's next for you? Yeah. Um, so once the pandemic is over, and it's safe to travel again, and the school lets us travel again. Um, I've been working in 2019, started a new project with Teresa Gildner, who you guys are familiar with. Um, and uh, we're working in the rural South or really anywhere in the rural United States that may have soil transmitted helminths or other interesting gut dysbiosis or environmental interests things of interest to us as they come up. So uh, this project is called the Rural Embodiment and Child Health Project. And we're kind of following up on studies from the 1970s, 1950s that found parasites in the US. And then these studies just stopped happening and nobody really knows what happened with these parasites. So we're doing that. Um, I'm also really interested in Helicobacter pylori, H. pylori infections especially, so this came up while we were doing our research in 2019, the kids in this community, and it's a largely African-American community, had really high rates of intestinal inflammation compared to other kids in the United States. And we talked to the nurse there and she said that she often sees active H. pylori infections. And this made me really interested. So H. pylori, if you're not familiar, is 
a fascinating bacteria because it's it's kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't infection. Um, I don't, am I allowed to say damned? I probably am. This is an adult show. <laughs> but, but, we say um, far worse all the time, so no worries. <laughs> okay, so it's a damned if you do, damned if you don't infection because people who, it's, it's kind of something that may have been a symbiont with us, a mutualist or a commensal throughout a lot of human history. If you start looking at the numbers of H. pylori in human samples, they decline since like the 1950s. And people who never get exposed to it have higher rates of gastroesophageal reflux disease, esophageal cancer, but then people who do have pathogenic infections with it have higher rates of gastric cancer. And so kind of figuring out what sorts of environments and, and what microbiomes look like and people who have these pathogenic infections are, would be interesting to me. Uh, so I want to follow up with that in the community and actually test Helicobacter pylori infection in the kids there. Um, and that's important because they found that in adults, H. pylori infection is related to high rates of gastric cancers, especially in African-American adults. So understanding why this is happening even maybe early in kids is something that's really important to figure out. So that's one of the things we're, I'm interested in. Um, I want to do similar work with that in Ecuador as soon as my daughter is old enough to <laughs> accompany me to Ecuador as well. So, or, or to feel less guilty about leaving behind for an extended period of time while I go off grid. But <laughs> yeah, so that, those are kind of my main two interests there. So, I have others, but. <laughs> that's fascinating. And I remember talking to Teresa about the, the rural South uh, research as well. And I, I just did a guest spot with um, Molly Zuckerman at Mississippi State, who's done bioarchaeological perspective, some of the hygiene hypothesis theory work, and then in, in the skeletal populations. So that's super fascinating. And I almost, I know I, we did this to Teresa, and I almost want to do it do it with you which is like ask the nitty-gritty of like how you take the stool samples because I'm just I have 17 year olds but my mind is also still right there with them 17 year olds I want to know how you take the poop into the lab find <laughs> these things I know the look on her face had the disgust sensitivity of Likert of a five right there like so what's the lab work look like for you and then you say you're at an undergraduate institution I'll finish with a joke and say, where can folks find you to send you their stool samples? <laughs> I'm at the our stool samples, people. Yeah, I won't even actually say my university now. So I'm at U University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, but please don't send me stool samples. I get weird phone calls about like really weird things, if I'm being honest with you, that have to do with stool samples and I don't you know, want to talk about it. So, <laughs> so uh, yeah, I, when you were saying, the reason I looked so disgusted when you were saying, how do we collect the stool samples? This is like, he doesn't really think that we like follow them to the bathroom and like <laughs> collect it ourselves. No, uh, we don't. So we don't do that, but we do give, we give people a cup, say, bring it back to us within an hour of collection. Uh, this is easy or hard, depending on how far away people are from wherever we are currently. But you can't really predict when somebody's going to poop. So you can't like be there for them when it happens <laughs> to take it from them. So uh, yeah, we do that and then process it, wear masks, uh, process it to do microscopy in the field. 
uh, take a sample. I actually have a field device that I'm testing that measures fecal calprotectin. Um, and that's a measure of intestinal inflammation. So I'm kind of, I'm actually doing a poster on it for HBA on how field friendly it is. Uh, so seeing how that will work and I don't know, I haven't decided yet how I feel about it, but uh, can run that <clears throat> and then ship some back frozen to the lab to look at uh, fecal calprotectin via ELISA as well. Uh, we're also starting to look at how we can measure H. pylori, both point of care device in the field and uh, ELISA at home, as well as lactoferrin, which is associated with inflammation and a whole bunch of other fun. I'm, we're exploring new biomarkers in poop that I'm excited about. So. <laughs> and, and I do, I joke, but I, I do want to reiterate, you know, like the show's called The Sausage of Science. And what we really want to know is how the science is made. But I know just from doing saliva samples with uh, church members that if they gave me their saliva sample, if they forgot to give it to me and they left it in their trunk or they were wearing lipstick that day, like we got all kinds of variables that enter into these things. And there were no, there were very few studies on the methods to tell me like, what do I do with this? Can I use this? Right. So like I, we are truly interested in like new field methods and innovations and like how you how you get from point A to point B. It's fascinating. I have a deep, deep fear of that, like that they're going to bring me something that's been sitting for a while or that they're going to bring me something that's non-human, that like, like dog, like maybe dog poop. Or one time somebody brought me something and it had, when I opened it, a, a very different smell. I know this is really gross, very different smell and a whole bunch of little white, like larva and you tend not to see that in human parasite infections. They didn't look like Scolexes from tapeworm. And so I was wondering if she had like brought me some other animal that had sat out overnight and what was in it had hatched. I was, I, it's, I don't know what to do with that. So, so yeah, it would be, we should all sit around and figure out what we do with weird stuff. I, I'm assuming I, should, I could like test it for DNA, but that would be weird and, and expensive just to find out what was yeah. going on. It's, it's the expense part. I think that's the problem. But I think that if we can find a way to test these things, then we have field methods papers. We have methods papers. And, and those are actually important because we're not in labs. We are in the field and these things do happen. I mean, this is completely the norm, not the exception. That's something we're working on seed grants for to figure out just uh, like point of care versus... Uh because they're all validated. Point of care devices are validated. They talk about how effective and how similar they are to ELISA, but nobody validates them in the field where you have humidity variation and you have kind of time-related variation. So that's something that's also another project that I'm starting to work on as well. Yeah. Very cool. You have a lot of really neat stuff, uh, a lot of irons in the fire, and we're very likely going to have you on again to talk about the new fun things and if you ever dna test the random buggy <laughs> poo uh you will have to come back on and give us an update um <laughs> and so we we like to end with a fun question and you've already mentioned that you you have a three-year-old at home who likes to watch maybe less than desirable tv shows uh but uh, what other sort of fun things do you do to maintain work-life integration? Yeah, I don't know that I would call it work-life integration. I feel like I have, she hasn't, my daughter hasn't been in daycare for, oh, about a year now. So, <laughs> so uh, work-life integration is something, but we do have fun. 
we uh, seem to do a lot of seasonal activities. We mm. sledded a lot this winter. We're supposed to get like two I heard million that. feet of snow this weekend. Yeah. And I'm, I I'm heard scared. That, so, I mean, I heard Denver was going to get hit, but I didn't hear about Colorado Springs. So you are also getting equally hammered with snow this weekend? I think a little less, but I don't know. We're about an hour, hour and a half. We're in the north part of Colorado Springs, so we're about an hour, hour and a half away. I heard like two to three feet as a prediction. Headline so, <laughs> said five feet, and I was like, "I will, I don't, you, I don't know what to do." So can't even comprehend that in one <laughs> in one storm. You cannot comprehend five feet of snow. Anyway, I'm sorry. Seasonal so, activities. We're supposed to. We we sledded a lot this winter. I got really good at drawing with chalk over the summer. Um, but as for like adult things, I always have to talk about my favorite television show in the whole world because if you've ever met anybody who watches the show, we are crazy about it. The show is called Dark on Netflix. Have you watched Dark on Netflix? It is so good. My, my fa- uh, I think my family were watching it, and I have read a lot about it, but I haven't watched it yet. It's on my list. So it's German. It's a German show. It's uh, there's three seasons, and I have honestly watched this show three times all the way through, and I cannot stop thinking about it. It is like, and I can't explain it to you without giving it away. But even if I explained it to you, it wouldn't give it away because it's so complex. Like if you even if you go look at communities who watch it, people have drawn up these really complicated family trees and all this other stuff that's going on that is just necessary to watch. So I didn't draw them up, but we talked about it a lot after to work that's through awesome. it. Is it, it is dubbed or subtitled? Both. And both. Okay. <laughs> you can Do you have a preference? One. I actually use both. Because oh, no, no. It's good to know. I'm curious. I used both because it's uh, a lot of people swear by the German. They say you're going to miss the good acting and the emotions if you don't use the German. But I kind of liked the different interpretations that you can Mm. get while you're watching it. So they'll say something and the subtitle will be slightly different. And I know nothing about German. So I'm like, I wonder which one is more correct. (laughs) (laughs) But you get both so you don't miss anything. Uh, my husband and I over the weekend watched Dead Snow 2. This is a, a horror kind of comedy series of it's Norwegian and Nazi zombies. Pretty great. But like Norway is all about this thing where they are going to, they refilm everything. They do it twice. They'll do everything once in Norwegian and then they'll do it again in English so that they don't have to worry about the dubbing or the subtitle changes. And I'm like, that's impressive. Also, I highly recommend a hilarious horror film, Dead Snow and Dead Snow 2. Did you watch uh, Troll Hunter? That was Norwegian yes. too. That was so good. <laughs> like really great film is coming out of Norway and I don't think it's getting the respect it deserves. Yeah, that, that was a good one. Anyway, Tara, this has been a really, really wonderful conversation and I've quite enjoyed it. Thank you. Me too. And thank you so much for taking the time again to be with us today. And, and for bearing with us. Yeah. All things. Um, <laughs> 